Hello! Welcome to the first episode of Ah! A Helpful Hand in History. This podcast is made for A-level history students looking into the causes, events and outcomes of collectivisation. You may also be simply interested in this transformative period of time. If so, I envy the fact you don't have to remember this stuff. From kulaks to komsomol and procurement to the Politburo, I really hope I can help simplify this complicated era into a private plot-sized bite. In order to understand collectivization, we first must look at where on earth it came from. Towards the end of the 1920s, the Soviet Union's new economic policy, or NEP, was losing steam. Despite having sustained growth through the early 20s, in 1927, growth plateaued for the first time. Furthermore, the NEP was seen as ideologically questionable, allowing for the proliferation of capitalist elements within society, like the net men and the ways in which peasants interacted with the market, only 5% of which did so through collected farms in 1928. The agricultural processes which peasants used were also rather backward. In 1927, it was estimated that more than 5 million wooden ploughs were still in use. But perhaps the most rupturing event that ended the NEP was the procurement crisis of 1927-28. The procurement of grain was vital to Soviet growth. The government exported the grain in return for money or resources to invest into industry and grow the economy, which lagged behind the rest of Europe like a diddy dashund at a greyhound race. From 1927 to 28, the volume of grain procured dropped by a quarter. To Stalin and much of the Communist Party, the peasants were seen as slowing down both the economy and the progress of Marxism. There was a pushback to this from the so-called rightists of the party, like Bukharin, who championed what is called gradualism, allowing peasants to get wealthy in order to encourage a broader consumer-based market to exist with state controls. Importantly, this would not involve an attack on the peasantry. However, this pushback only proved to cement Stalin's rise to power, seeing writers like Bukharin ousted from the Politburo in 1929 and Rykov from the Premiership in 1930. Finally, the turn to collectivization and other policies like the five-year plan meant a turn towards self-sufficiency. The threat of foreign invasion played, quite rightly I must add, on Stalin's mind. To achieve this, Stalin knew that the USR required a strong industrial base, to Stalin, this could only occur with a swelling urban population and a subservient peasantry who supplied regular food to the cities and for exports. Both of these could be feasibly achieved through collectivization. Thus, the change in policy and the death of the NEP announced in December 1927 came as a result of a mix of a wide range of economic, political, geopolitical, social and ideological motives, all unified in the belief that, under Stalin, the Soviet Union had to maintain a self-sufficiency which would only come with collectivization. Now we know why collectivization came about, we move on to the thick and confusing jungle of events. The process of collectivization can best be seen in eight defined stages. Stage 1. Emergency measures. After calling a stop to NEP in December 1927, in January, the Politburo took to voting for emergency measures, meaning that grain could now be confiscated by the force. In that summer, 100,000 Komsomol Youth Party members and factory workers went to the countryside to aid the harvest. Stage 2. The Ural-Siberian Method This lasted from winter 1928-29, to 29, where poorer peasants were asked to point out Kulak families hoarding grain. They would receive a 25% reward of any grain confiscated. 
This was largely a successful policy, but presented no long-term solution. This began the process of deculacization. A side note on deculacization. This was the process by which the richer and more efficient peasants were removed. Kulaks were put into three categories. Those in the most dangerous category were to be shot. Those in the second category were to be transported to cold Siberia. Those in the third category were given poor quality land outside the collective farms. Stalin called for the liquidation of the Kulak class on the 27th of December 1927. Two months later, on the 1st of February 1930, he gave local party organisations the power to take necessary measures against the Kulaks. Local party officials were usually housed in MTSs, or machine tractor stations, of which there were around 2,500 at the start of collectivization. This process was therefore a huge task. Stage 3. Forced Collectivization In the summer of 1929, the Collective Farm Centre was set up, a centralised body which controlled the practice of collectivised farms. This quickly gave way to increased intervention in the collectivization process. By November of the same year, the Central Committee had authorised sending 25,000 urban party workers into the countryside to push collectivization and decoolakization onwards. After the process was called to a halt, around 1 million families had been affected, with one third of these being transported to Siberia. By 1940, nearly 400,000 kulaks had been killed. These 25,000 shock troopers weren't without opposition. 25 to 30 percent of all animals were slaughtered rather than being handed over to the state. Sometimes these urban party workers were beaten back by villages such as those in Vileyov and thousands of revolts which dotted the country. These were all swiftly put down. Stage 4. The party retreats. All of a sudden, the frantically turning wheels of collectivization seemed to grind to a shaking halt. On the 2nd of March 1930, Stalin published his famous Dizzy with Success article in Pravda. It criticised party workers who had been too enthusiastic in collectivization. At the time of the article, the rate of collectivization stood at around 50 to 60%. By August, it shot back down to 20%. It is likely that the party had to retreat or face urban rationing, starvation and revolts, those like which had put the Bolshevik regime in place back in 1917. Stage 5. Collectivization resumed. The 1930 harvest was good. Once grain was procured and urban starvation mitigated against, collectivization rolled back into action. By 1931, collectivization rate had increased back up to the 50% level. An important difference here is that, after 1930, the number of MTSs with their respective party officials vastly increased, so that each MTS covered 40 farms. These stations also brought tractors to replace the ploughs of yesteryear. By 1933, this had reached 75,000. Stage 6. Famine. The years 1931 to 1934 saw terrible harvests. However, in those years, grain procurement remained high. As Moltov said, the backs of the peasants were broken. Party workers acting on farms knew little about farming techniques. The most efficient peasants, those branded as kulaks, were dead, on terrible land, or in Siberia. A planned, cruel disaster. Reports of cannibalism began shooting up in spring 1933. Around four to five million died in the famine, mainly around Ukraine and what is today referred to as the Holodomor. Stage 7. Consolidation. In 1935, a special party congress meeting approved a new model for collectivised farms. 
They set out the rules for payments of the collective farms and the nature of the relationship between collective farms and MTSs. In practice, this brought collective farms under the state. However, concessions were made to the peasants, albeit limited. Private plots were legalised with allowances for livestock, and this would become the primary source of the Soviet Union's food. By the late 1930s, 52% of vegetables and 70% of meat was produced on these private plots. Collectivization continued to rise, and by 1941, almost all of the peasants in the Soviet Union lived in collectivized farms. The effects of such change are as wide as they are tall. Wide in the fact that every member of society, from the poorest peasant to Stalin himself, was affected. And tall in the fact that they impacted everyone to a monumental extent. First, we will look at how Stalin was impacted. Above all, as a Marxist, the elimination of class differences in the countryside was a definite victory for Stalin. The process of collectivization can also be understood as an attack on the Soviet institution that had existed since the revolution, and the NEP, which had existed since the time of Lenin. Old Bolsheviks were given a choice between compliance and defiance. Those who opposed Stalin, like Bukharin and Rykov, went the way of the NEP. Those who remained were forced to toe the party line. By the end of the collectivization period, Stalin was the sole, indisputable leader of the country. The Soviet state, by this point an extension of Stalin himself, faced vast impacts from collectivization. Machine tractor stations brought state control into an unruly peasantry for the first time since 1861 and the emancipation of the peasants. Furthermore, the aim of self-sufficiency was largely achieved. State procurement doubled to 22.6 million tonnes during the process of collectivization, and this efficiency meant that Stalin's Russia could industrialise and survive the Nazi invasion of the Second World War. However, all was not well for the state. Despite rising procurement, foreign income didn't see a rise as a result of external factors around the Great Depression. Real grain production also saw a decrease from 73.3 million tonnes per year in 1928 to 67.6 million tonnes per year in 1934. Compound this with the fact that 25-30% to 30 of livestock were slaughtered and it is clear to see how the Soviet agricultural sector never truly recovered. Even by the death of Stalin in 1953, livestock numbers had still not recovered past their pre-collectivization levels. For urban workers, many of the horrors of collectivization would have been concealed by the smokescreen of propaganda. They had their own problems with the five-year plans. What was true was that cities never bore the brunt of bad harvests anymore. State control and procurement assured that sufficient food would end up in cities. The dire rural conditions also led to a vast amount of rural-urban migration. The number of migrants could be as high as 19 million, swelling the sizes of cities. For peasants, utter devastation. Whilst agricultural machinery was in greater supply post-collectivization, and those peasants who were the lowest of the low saw some advancement, these small positives pale in comparison to the whole-scale devastation and destruction of the peasantry. Deaths from famine and the process of decolonization range in estimates from 2 million to 7 million. Over 10 million people were forcibly displaced from their homes. A whole class of the most efficient peasants had simply disappeared. Abandoned or burnt-out villages like that of the once-defined Vilayov sprawled across the countryside. To summarise, Stan's collectivization was motivated by desire for self-sufficiency. The process by which he achieved this came in several stages and was by no means linear, twisting as events flowed. But despite the Dizzy with Success article of 1930 and the concessions of 1935, there was no value in resistance. 
The process brought with it many effects, some desired, some unintentional, which changed the social makeup of Russia indefinitely, cemented Stalin's position of power, and ultimately achieved its holy aim of self-sufficiency, the price of which was monumental human sacrifice, the likes of which the world has seldom seen. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and congratulations on making it all the way to the end. I'm off to walk my dog, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you.